0: My name is Ali Hanley, and this is Turning the Goldfields Green, a Saltgrass production. This is an interview show about sustainability and climate action in the central goldfields region of Victoria, Australia. The show will be a regular part of programming at Main FM 94.9, airing 9am Monday mornings, and will also be a podcast, which of course may be listened to from anywhere. So occasionally I will explain some things that may be obvious to locals because people listening in Barcelona or Bahrain may not know what on earth we are talking about. For your information, the bird calls you can hear in the background is a dawn chorus recorded in Friars Town, which is very near here. It was recorded and uploaded to a website called freesound.org by a person called Kangaroo Vindaloo, which I think is an awesome name. Being the first episode, I will start with a little bit about what this show will be all about, who I am and why I'm doing it. We'll also have a chat with Dean Belfield, who will introduce a book called Drawdown. In the show, I would like to run regular segments with ideas like recommended reading, product reviews, adaptation ideas and also a regular spot to explore one of the ideas in this book, Drawdown. In the second half of the show, I'll be interviewing Joan Webster, who is an Order of Australia Medal winner for her work in raising awareness and educating the Australian public on bushfire safety, so I just thought, given the fire season we're having right now, it would be pertinent to talk to her. And across the next few episodes, I will also be um, sharing some of her top tips from her books, which links into the idea of adaptation, which is what the frick are we going to do to get ready for the climate emergency, for the rising temperatures that are already starting to happen around us. But before any of that, I want to acknowledge that this program, Main FM, MAZG, and most of the interviews I will be recording across the series are on the land of the Jara Jara people, traditional custodians and caretakers of the land. I would like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and there has been no treaty signed. And to borrow the words used on the local Nulderun website, I would like to thank them for the care they have taken of country, the rivers, mountains, trees, and animals. I would like to honour this country, the elders past and present, and most importantly, the young, proud Aboriginal people, as they are our leaders for tomorrow. The original idea for this program was to create an upbeat but informative program about what all the brilliant people and organisations of the central goldfields region of Victoria, Australia are doing about climate change. And I guess that is still the plan. But it's really hard to stay positive when half of the country is on fire. This summer of 2019-20 has been disastrous, to say the least. It's only January out here in the dry centre of Victoria we're all very much aware of the fire season and usually honestly it's only about now in mid-January that we start to really watch our fire apps the fires certainly should not be starting in November before summer has even officially begun this is not normal and I'm recording this on a day that has been grey with smoke all day That pleasant smoky smell that usually means someone has lit their fireplace or is having a backyard bonfire is not so comforting today. I don't know where this thick haze of grey has come to us from. It may be Gippsland, it may be New South Wales. The smoke has reached New Zealand. It's travelling. In some ways it doesn't actually matter which particular fire the smoke is from. Almost all of the states and territories are burning and all of the fires represent the same thing. The lives of humans have been lost the lives of millions of animals have been lost. Ecosystems and habitats have been destroyed and it is as yet impossible to tell what effects that will have into the future biodiversity of our beautiful country. Forests that should not be burning, which have not evolved to burn like so much of the Australian bush has done, even those wet places are burning because they are no longer wet. We have suffered drought and now we suffer fires on a scale that we have never seen before. This won't happen every year. But it will happen more often in the years to come if we don't act on climate change right now. As much as some rile against it, it is impossible to deny that environmental mismanagement and climate change are playing out right before our eyes. Greta Thunberg recently posted on social media that she gets accused of being simplistic, too black and white. Her response to that is that this climate change problem is the most complicated challenge humanity has ever faced. But it is also simple. There are millions of ways to do it, but there is only one thing we actually have to do. We have to stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere and we have to do it quickly. And we have to draw down carbon, if at all possible, so that it's no longer in the atmosphere. We have to prevent the global average temperature rising 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Most people in their 40s or younger have not experienced much weather at pre-industrial levels. Our globe is already warmer. Australians are some of the highest emission producers per capita in the world. Yet our leaders would have us think that we are so small in population that we don't count. How can we, who live lives of unimaginable luxury compared to so much of the world's population, think that we deserve not to be inconvenienced, that we can get out of it with a little bit of clever carbon accounting? We have a responsibility to lead the rest of the world in practice at all levels. We can lead in research, in education, at a federal level and in small country towns like those we inhabit in central Victoria. I've been working at the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, or MASG, for two years, and I still don't have my head around all the complexities of all the things that must happen to make this work. I am not a scientist or an engineer or a policy maker or an ecologist. I have a background in the arts and radio. I'm not an expert in anything much at all. Like most people, I see a hundred articles a day either telling me I have to change everything about how I live or telling me to be outraged about something out of my control. It is overwhelming and depressing. But also, I take inspiration and hope from the brilliant people all around me, both at MASG and in the community. Each one striving in all areas of life to try and pull us collectively away from the imminent train wreck that will be our world if we do nothing about climate change. People are working on waste reduction and management, alternative energy generation, fossil fuel-free transport options, sustainable housing and building methods, regenerative farming and localising food production, and how the bloody hell we can actually pull carbon out of the air. These are passionate, generous, selfless people who are largely volunteering their time and expertise to find alternative ways of running a business or run a service for the community like the repair cafe or boomerang bags. People who are protesting and petitioning or who have spent a lifetime working in industry and are now willing to apply their knowledge to our local sustainability projects. I, personally, am not perfect in my lifestyle choices and I'm not interested in making anyone feel bad for the choices they make. I do, however, want to get better. And the only way to do that is to look at what other people are doing and try some of that out for myself. I want to learn and I want to know what people who are experts think about it all. So here we are. I, the not expert, will interview people who do know some things so that we can all learn. Every week for the next six months, I will talk to people who know about stuff. I'll be asking for input from you, the listener. What do you want to know about? What worries you the most? What do you think is not being spoken about enough? I am aware that many people are overwhelmed and increasingly either angry or depressed about the political mismanagement of the climate crisis. I'm not going to rant and focus on what is going so very wrong. We get enough of that on social media and in the news. What I want to hear are constructive, achievable steps forward. I want to learn about what will work locally. I want to learn about how to influence those in power. I want to learn about what will happen here as the climate changes and what we can do to start getting our small towns and homes ready for the changes that will come. That is, how do we adapt to the realities of climate change? These fires, these horrendous, massive, previously unseen in scale and scope fires may at least be a wake-up call for a nation that has been told to relax and keep on snoozing by the very people who ought to be leading us out of danger. Our political leaders have been grossly negligent in their duty to serve the country and protect us from a problem that has been warned against for decades. After working at Mask for a couple of years, I know that the answers are many and varied. No single answer will suffice, but we can learn from Indigenous wisdom and knowledge. We can learn from scientists, sociologists, psychologists and economists. We can learn from farmers and engineers and politicians and we can learn from menders and fixers, off-grid renegades and urban planners. We can contemplate alternatives to our current societal systems, democracy, capitalism and consumerism. We can learn ways that are more akin to the ancient ways of our First Nations people, where we consider ourselves not owners of the land, but caretakers, where nature is not a resource to be plundered for gain, but a delicate, powerful, wondrous life system of which we are only one small element. So yeah, I'm going to try and keep things positive because we need to know where we're going. And personally, I find that learning about what solutions and answers people have come up with is much more motivating than always looking at how things are going so wrong. We don't have a choice but to work this out. And we have to work together. We have to find ways to help each other and the rest of the world through. Every effort is a drop of water in our global evaporative cooler, so to speak. So if that's also what you want to learn, then stay tuned. Let's learn together. Salt,
1: so, salt here. Yes.
2: Salt, salt, salt. Grasm. Grass, grass,
0: salt of the earth, people, grassroots, grassroots change, salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Dean Belfield, you are a committee member of MASG and interested in regenerative agriculture and you run a consulting a management consultancy business for helping businesses go green and you are a great fan of a book called Drawdown and in the radio series uh, I'm producing right now I'd love to have a segment where every week we explore one of the concepts of Drawdown. So could you please introduce us to the book and explain a little bit about how it was created and um,
1: what you've gotten from it. Yeah, Ali, that's a good question. Um, Drawdown is a, an organisation, a not-for-profit organisation in the US, initiated by Paul Hawken. Paul is well known to many people in the environmental slash business space since his um, seminal book called The Ecology of Commerce, written in 1992, which even if you read it today, which I encourage people to do you wouldn't know that it was written so long ago because it's completely relevant in almost every way. In fact the the call to arms that Paul talks about in 1992 is even more um, pertinent right now. So over those ensuing years Paul's written a number of other books such as the Natural Capitalism, co-authored that with Amory Lovins, a terrific book. Another one was Blessed Unrest and so on and he's um, worked both as an environmental campaigner, advocate, um, an entrepreneur. He's run quite a few businesses and he's very much a change agent in terms of his thinking and he fully understands what the forces are in the, in the business world and the community and the environment and has a way of weaving all these together in, in a manner that actually does demonstrate to us how it's, it's not only very achievable but it entirely makes sense that we not lose sight of what it is that enables our business to function in terms of our dependence on nature. And when we talk about sustainability, uh, he's very much in that space as, as I've been for some decades now. And when people, he's very good at sh- communicating and um, shattering the paradigm, if you like, that the businesses and politicians alike have held for quite some time. And that is they say, well, we can't afford to adopt all these environmental practices because it's gonna cost us. So this notion of a trade-off is either one or the other is um, it's almost like a sacred cow, but in fact, he dismantles that quite quickly. One of the questions he asked is, show me a business case for unsustainability. And there simply is not one. And I've never heard a CFO or a business leader say that there is one or even demonstrate that. So it's a terrific response, that one for people who are looking to equip themselves with an understanding of how to communicate to businesses. The Drawdown organisation arose as a response to the trend lines that we continue to see occurring all around the world, and that is, you know, the planet's unravelling at various rates of change. If you take all the trend lines that Will Steffen from ANU had pulled together and done with other people internationally, whether it's to do with the fish in the oceans, the resources on the land, be it the, the timber, the water, the birds quality of the air and so on, they're all following an, an, basically an exponential or a j-curve taking us in the wrong direction. And they, these are all life support systems that we on the planet depend on if we're going to survive. The planet will survive regardless, um, it just may not wish to have us part of that for too long unless we change. So I personally am rather committed to hanging around um, and I think we have a, a wonderful opportunity to live a life that is almost unimaginable. if we pull our head out of the sand and start to work with these natural systems that we entirely depend upon rather than um, fight against them or resist them because there might be some commercial dogma or paradigm that says we can't afford to do it or we have to maximise our return to the shareholders. But you come back to that, you know, there's no business case for unsustainability response uh, and that's um, that's pretty robust. So Drawdown evolved from Paul Hawkins' recognition that despite all the great work that's been done by people around the world, the, the sheer momentum of that corporate sector and the so-called democracies and governments that we have is actually not giving us the rate of change that we need to see. And it's not the change isn't occurring, there's some tremendous stuff happening, but it's not happening at the rate that we need it to, to avert the sorts of um, unattended consequences and outcomes and catastrophes that we've already seen uh, indicators of in the last 10, 20 years, particularly around weather. So Drawdown was based around, or the, the, the concept was, here's a topic that people understand as distinct from sustainability, which is so diverse and so broad, but climate and the planet warming is something that most people can relate to, whether you believe it is human induced or not is irrelevant. I think the consensus widely adopted more and more and more by people, it's, it's almost unanimous is that the climate is changing, it is warming, it's becoming far more erratic, far more unpredictable, and we need to heed that warning. And hence the key metric, if you like, or indicator of that is the um, parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, which we all know that, you know we talk about 350 and 400 and 450 and so on, and, and how many degrees above what we consider normal that is. Drawdown is about pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and through a range of different projects that will enable us to reverse that trend. And the name of the book is called Drawdown. It's based on the organisation called drawdown.org, which Paul had assembled a group of probably 100 scientists and academics and people well regarded in their fields around the world who had no vested interest and were seen to be independent. And he's... He's tapped into that expertise and identified approximately 100 projects which all can contribute towards drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere and cost-effectively and at sufficient speed to enable us to work towards a safe climate. The title of the book, Drawdown, the byline is the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. Well... In Paul's words, it is the only plan that's not just the most comprehensive and no-one has challenged that to date because there's been nothing else proposed, which is quite surprising.
0: In the introduction, he says that he spent many years going around asking all these experts that he had access to, you know, like, what do we do, what's the plan? And all of them said, yeah, it'd be great to have a list. And he realised eventually that maybe he would be the one who had to make the list. And this is
1: the list. That is the list, and the list is quite a fluid list in the sense that it's ranked in order. An example of that is that for each of those 100 projects, there is a ranking in terms of one to 100, there is a number which is the estimated gigatons of CO2 in the atmosphere that this could help abate or reduce, and then there's a net cost to that. And in almost every case, the net cost is actually a negative cost or it's essentially a revenue gain. So it is financially sensible and prudent to adopt these strategies, these projects, and all of them are based on existing technologies. We're not waiting for a silver bullet or some new unheralded technology that's going to solve all the problems. They're already in front of us right now.
0: In the book, he has grouped these 100 answers into, I think it's five or six um, main categories. Do you want to talk us through the categories or list them?
1: Yeah, so the categories are around food, energy transport building and cities women and girls materials and land use so they're the broad categories and then within each of those categories there's subcategories which are relating to the specific project so if you look at women and girls for example and that mostly relates to the developing countries and we're all familiar with the significant impact and potential that exists there um, the three projects that they've identified there are uh, the education of young girls, um, secondly family planning and what they call women smallholders. So women have been um, instrumental in countries like Bangladesh and elsewhere through using um, microfinancing to bootstrap those communities to save money to invest in local businesses and basically turn their local economies around. They're awesome stories and they work. You know? It's just shifted the paradigm. If you look at those hundred projects, you'll find that whilst they are global, um, you, in any particular region and that's, that very much applies to the Mount Alexander Shire, is that you go through and you say, okay, let's identify those that are immediately irrelevant to us. So educating girls, family planning, you know, women's small holes, and are probably less relevant to this particular demographic, but things such as land use. Some of those areas are very relevant to us. Some projects like tropical forests, less so. Temperate forests, yes. Peatlands, less so. Afforestation, absolutely. Bamboo, unlikely. Forest protection, yes. Indigenous peoples' land management, yes. Perennial biomass, yes. Coastal wetlands, probably less so in this region. So out of the 100, you could probably pick at least 50 projects that are very relevant to the Mount Alexander Shire or any other community in Australia for that matter. And they can become focal points that. That attract people who already have a passion along at least one or many of those to um, harness their existing skill sets and collaborate and work together towards a common goal of drawing down within that regional community
0: so you have uh, expressed an idea or suggested a concept that may help a community like ours bring these projects to life which is a drawdown hub how would that work
1: well if you look at an area like our shire man Shire there is a lot of Um, Terrific initiatives that people are involved with and we can all relate to a number of those. But they all too often sort of function independently of each other and that's fine but if we have a common goal which is actually drawing down our emissions in the Shire amongst the other sustainability benefits and co-benefits and we extrapolate what we can achieve in our Shire across every other Shire in Australia, um, we can join these up at a national level and we can, we can set targets that actually work at a national level and we can share knowledge and expertise and progress and so on across those municipalities. Now, each of those shires actually has the potential to establish its own drawdown hub. And that hub doesn't have to be uh, like a new whole organisation or infrastructure or body. Um, it really is just bringing together those existing parties and identifying within those drawdown projects how they can collaborate and work together. So what one group is doing with their project, which might be related to food and agriculture, can actually very much relate to, or they can see that there's a potential for collaboration with the people who buy the food in the community. You might not be in agriculture, but might be an important part, that is the consumers of that food and and also control the waste streams that flow from that food. So we can start to join all that together into this sort of fabric that um, the Drawdown offers us the potential to do and we can ongoingly develop a goal, like a drawdown target in terms of emissions within the Shire. And we can put strategies around that that can involve the whole community. And it's really not like we're doing anything extra or very little extra. It's just building on what we've got, but coordinating that mm. and integrating that into a, in a, in, with a common focus. I'll look at the list here and I'll just mention some of the things that we know are existing or happening within the community. So under energy, for example, the wind turbines, Solar farms, rooftop solar, so they're all relevant. Nuclear, probably not so, or geothermal, not so. Concentrated solar, there's some of that actually north of here up at Bridgewater. Methane digesters, absolutely. Um, That's something MASC is looking at, actually. Biomass, solar hot water, um, a bit of hydro up at Cairn Curran with untapped potential there at the moment. Cogeneration, waste to energy.
0: Sorry, what's co... Co-energy? Co-generation.
1: Co-generation, Co-gen- uh, co-generation is essentially um, where you're using a gas to generate both heat and power. Right? So the end end user needs electricity yeah. on one hand, but they also need heat, yeah. it's energy in a different form. So co-generation allows us to take, for example, biogas mm. and turn it into those useful energy. So
0: products. the biodigester proposed by MASG for this community would serve that purpose?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, that's aligned with it totally. Another one under energy, and this is just the energy category, which is one of the seven categories here, is um, microgrids. So we know that that's already been looked at, and you said are looking at, and others in the community are looking at. So straight away, just under that one category, probably fifty percent of those projects are relevant to us,
0: and already underway, and
1: already underway. And similarly for materials, bioplastic, household recycling, industrial recycling, recycled paper maybe alternative cement and so on, water saving home. So 60% of those apply straight away under the materials topic. From a food point of view, I'll list some of those. Reduced food waste, plant-rich diet, silver pasture, regenerative agriculture, conservation agriculture, tree intercropping, managed grazing, farmland restoration, multi-strata agroforestry, composting, nutrient management, farmland irrigation, biochar, So that's 80% under the food category. The ones that wouldn't be included here might be around um, clean cook stoves, tropical staple trees, systems of rice and so on. But 80% are relevant and so on and so forth. So you you could actually include everybody under one or more projects within the Drawdown Hub. Mm -hmm. You do have the tremendous opportunity as part of bringing people together to involve the council Mm -hmm. and the local schools and the other institutions within the Shire who are significant in our lives, including the hospitals and so on.
0: I think a lot of people in the community are really anxious um, and deeply worried about climate change and the impacts it's gonna have around here and are looking for meaningful ways to contribute that's more than just recycling and getting a solar system on their house. And a lot of people can't do that because they're renting or they can't afford it. You know, there's, there's reasons. Um, So, if there were opportunities for the public to get involved in particular projects, it might be a really meaningful thing for people.
1: Absolutely. Um, If people are involved in small, but projects that are important to them, such as recycling, and at the same time, it's easy to understand how you might be overwhelmed by the notion that, well, what difference does my recycling make in the grander scheme of things, or even in my community, then that's, that's perfectly understandable. However, when you see that recycling, along with 73 other potential projects that are relevant in the Shire, all can contribute. My recycling bit, even though it might be small, stands side by side to all the other projects. When you group all those up, then you have something that's truly significant. Mm -hmm. And you feel that people are seeing a relevance of that, and they will be empowered by that. And they realize that when you, the sum of all those together actually is a significant number. And if that number is actually a measure of what we can draw down on an annual basis in our region and that we can share that knowledge and expertise and bring the financial institutions into play to help facilitate this as well and the the political process, starting with the local council, um, how awesome would that be? You know, And that that will empower people and it will actually give people a sense of hope and and capability.
0: What I really like about the Drawdown book is that it's very well-researched. And so I, I feel like if you're using the Drawdown book and their website as a, as a starting point and as a, a launching point, you've, you've got some well-founded foundation.
1: It's an excellent guide. Um, it's only the beginning, um, but the whole Drawdown project is a work in progress anyway. And it's new, there's, there are multiple projects, probably at least 20 or 30 projects, maybe 50, but that are not yet re- reflected in the Drawdown book, and we know they exist. And at some point, they, they may displace others that are already in there as part of that top 100. bit like the pop charts, isn't it, the top 100. Um, We can have our own top 100 drawdown projects.
0: And I guess as certain items in the book are actually uh, seen through and actualised in the world, they're going to be removed from the list because people are doing it and there will be something else that will be more effective to do to draw down carbon.
1: Yeah, it's part of that that process, the pathway, the, the transition plan. I mean, this is all about transition. And success stories will be promoted. We need to see those. We don't want to hide those. Australians are incredibly talented at hiding our success stories. So that's a terrific way of actually celebrating our successes and giving us belief that we can make a difference. Um, Similarly, there'll be technologies and innovations that both technological, environmental, social and so on, and maybe political, that arise through this transition process that we can't even yet imagine. The greatest risk that we face is that if we all sit back there and think, well, we've got a government that's going to do this for us, that's why we put them in place, or the leaders of the world or the UN's going to show the way, I think we've got to the point now where thinking people realise that we don't want to wait any longer because they're not very good at doing that. They're very often too compromised. But at the local level, we have the power, we have the capability, we have the expertise, we've got the resources, we can do it at the local level. So that's why I'm particularly a very firm believer that... If we start local and work locally, then we can come together and in a collaborative framework network and just build that base and join it up around the planet. And then the governments very quickly will take note and they'll fall into line anyway. So, you know, there's a model there that I think uh, we can co-create along the way. But strangely, there's never been a better opportunity in the existence of uh, human history to shape the way the planet looks in a positive way. But similarly, like on a knife edge, If we don't grasp the nettle and do it, we know the consequences are probably not very attractive. Mm. Buckle up. Uh,
0: (laughs) It's gonna be a bumpy ride, it already
1: is. Uh, It'll be a fun ride. Yeah, yeah.
0: That was Dean Belfield talking about the book and organisation Drawdown. As mentioned in the interview, one feature of the book is that it ranks the topics from one to 100, with number one being that which will have the greatest benefit to our atmosphere if we were to follow through on it on a global level. And what is number one, I hear you ask? Well, it fits with a segment I like to call... How the frick are you supposed to recycle that? number one thing listed in the book drawdown that will help mitigate climate change and stop our global temperatures rising 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels is refrigeration and how we handle the gases at the end of the life of our refrigerated items. We all use them and as the temperatures continue to rise we will need them even more. Air conditioners, fridges and freezers. They all use refrigerants and at the end of their life in our homes and cars, they need to be disposed of very carefully. They can be safely degassed, but if not, then the gases that are in them are very harmful to the atmosphere. Back when the hole in the ozone layer was the big threat to the environment. Remember that people got together and created new rules about the particular gases used as refrigerants, banning specific ones and specifying ways to safely degas these items in general. As a global community, there was an astonishing display of how effectively and how quickly we can work together to change things if there is political will. Anyway, the point is that if you have air conditioners or fridges or freezers in your life, be bloody careful about what you do with it once it's no longer usable. If you have the means to drop them off to the local landfill or transfer stations, either in Castlemaine or Malden, they will take them for $20.50 per item or $17 in Eagle Hawk. There are also private companies that will come to your house and pick up any of these items uh, for a fee, I'm assuming. So you could Google search people who will pick up fridges, air conditioners or freezers and uh, see what you find. There is a really good website called recyclingnearyou.com.au. It's been put together by Planet Arc and it's basically a search engine for finding out where you can recycle various items near you. Now I'm going to talk to someone who should be well known to us all. Joan Webster is an Order of Australia medal winner for her lifelong work on increasing our safety during bushfires. She researched and wrote the Complete Bushfire Safety book, first published in 1986, The book quickly became a guide for all Australians for whom the Ash Wednesday fires of 1983 was still a fresh wound. In 2012, she wrote an abbreviated version with some updated advice. This is the bushfire safety tips, also now in its third edition. This summer has been an appalling fire season, as mentioned at the top of the episode. The topic is consuming people's news feeds, social media, and not to mention their minds and hearts. Even those not directly in the line of the fires are grieving for places they have visited, for friends and family who have been affected, or simply for the wildlife and ecosystems caught in the furnace. People around the world are donating and offering to sew pouches for injured wildlife. Australia has always been a nation that burns. But these fires are much earlier in the season than usual, and they are far more extensive in range, and they are burning a lot hotter. All of these things, unfortunately have been anticipated as things that will happen in Australia as climate change takes place. And yes, we are seeing it already. As the global average temperature rises, we as a nation have to prepare for more seasons like this one. We have to try and make our towns more shady because summers are going to get hotter. These sorts of things are already being discussed and financed by the government. And it seems so strange to me that the government is funding adaptation while simultaneously denying that climate change is even a thing at the top level. Anyway, I thought it would be good to chat to Joan, who now lives in Castlemaine, find out a bit about her and maybe pick up some bushfire safety tips along the way. You are widely acknowledged as uh, having done immaculate research to figure out the things that go into this book, and it's a great resource.
2: What made you start on this journey of researching bushfire safety? Well, I'd been keen on safety things of all types. Uh, From a young age, and when I became a journalist, I used to write about, because I lived near Warrandyte, which was a a very dangerous area at that time in the 1960s, and the Shire formed a civil defence for bushfire, the Doncaster Temple's Civil Defence for Bushfire. It was the first in Australia, probably the first in the world, and I was a foundation member of that, of which I honed a lot of my ideas, particularly about the evacuator or stay. That wasn't the beginning of my interest, but it was a refining of it. I'd been at authorities for years, basically from 64 I think, to put out more information to the public because the authorities had practically nothing. By 83, when it was Ash Wednesday, the CFA had a little book called uh, Summer Peril, but it was mainly aimed at people on the land, and it was very good as far as it went. The other states had nothing. New South Wales had um, an A4 flyer, and the day before Ash Wednesday I went into John Kane and I said, you must put out more information for the public because something's going to happen, and of course it did the next day. That's well, my daughter, Catherine Seppings, she's a graphic artist, and she Lived in Humevale, right in the Dandenongs, in an old rented farmhouse with animals and everything falling down. And we talked about bushfire safety all that summer and what could she do and so forth. And on that terrible day, I said, they, they have to put out more information. And she said, they're not going to do it, Mum. You're going to have to do it yourself. Well, I was in a pretty poor state of health. I really could only get out one newspaper article a week. I said, I can't write a book. And then I knew I, I had to try. So I did, I gathered everything that there was from the authorities, found they contradicted each other and contradicted themselves within themselves and just set two to sort it out. But I got the blessing of the CFA chief who was then Ron Orchard and said, I must have every word verified, every draft, and they appointed senior officers to do that. Of course it was all typing typing and self-addressed envelopes. <laughs> so I did that with every, every authority involved, whether it was building agriculture or what, so that I knew it would all be right. So it took me three and a half years, and then I got it, and it has become the definitive work that was called then The Complete Australian Bushfire Book. But when the third edition came out in 2000, we changed it to The Complete Bushfire Safety Book. And what's your background as a journalist? What were you focusing on as a journalist back then? Oh, everything. Well, I didn't start off as a journalist. I started off very young as a poet, then writing satire and lyrics for radio, stage and television. And because we built in a newly developing suburb, which was East Orcaster then, surrounded by grassy paddocks and the only house in the street and so on, I'd be nagging the council, this needs doing, that needs doing, and writing, writing to them, because I could write, I could always write. Eventually, the local paper said, you know what's going on, you can take photos, you can write, will you be a news correspondent? For two cents a published line and $5 a photo. So, yes, yeah, so I set two and um, turned my creative <laughs> juices into, into the more straightened, journalistic, and soon winning awards and so on. And so it, because I had a column as well as reporting, I was able to write on all sorts of... It was a Bushfire was one of the things I wrote on. I, all sorts of things, you name it. I had the driving licence test laws changed because you could go through a red light and you could still get your licence and it took me seven years to get the documentation for that. So I did all sorts of oh, wow. fixing up things. <laughs> Is this how you've received the Order of Australia... A commendation for for my bushfire safety work mm. yes yes i did mm. yes but you've obviously
0: always had um the community um benefit in mind i
2: have always yes I right back you know as a girl guide and be prepared I'm very keen on doing my good deed for the day
0: So what's the two books now that you've got, and I understand it's being published again by the
2: CSIRO because it's currently under so much demand for people to get a copy. That's right. Yes, that's the essential bushfire safety tips. That's the ready reference to the big in-depth complete book. And I did it, did the tips in dot point one liners to make it easy very easy access on any and a lot of people have them both and because the in-depth gives you a lot more information about a lot more different aspects and so on Mm -hmm. goes into the history and all sorts of things Mm -hmm. and it's full of anecdotes and illustrations Um, whereas the tips is is very factual this is the dangerous thing to do this is the safe thing and so on and so on Mm -hmm. so you can get the book at both books at the local Castlemaine Library and, and various other libraries, I'm sure. Yes, the Stoneman's have always had them. Um, if you Google it too, it always, it just comes up or if you even just put in bushfire safety or my name, they they both are coming up very quickly now. And in terms of this current fire season, which has just been horrendous
0: oh, yes. right across the nation, what are you seeing in people's responses and
2: what's happening out there? What, what are you really noticing? People are concerned about how to shelter safely when they're told it's too late to leave shelter, Mm. take shelter because they're not being told how to do so safely. They don't realise that 27% of people who died on Black Saturday died sheltering in their bathrooms. Mm. That those who died sheltering or defending had done so in very unsafe and often very foolish manners. So is. People just want to know, mostly, how, you know, how to how to shelter safely. They're very interested to learn that a pure wool blanket will protect you in the most extreme circumstances. Mm. And they want to know, where do we go? <laughs> and they have unnecessary fears about townships like Castlemaine being in. This is quote marks engulfed by flames. Mm. Mm. Okay well great so let's um,
0: we're going to investigate a couple of these topics in depth and um, and we'll be um, airing these topics um, periodically across the rest of the show and so let's talk about the woollen blanket first. I feel like that's sort of like
2: the quintessential last line of defense is to have a woolen blanket. Yes, a pure wool blanket. Uh, yes I call it the basic blanket. Mm. It must be pure wool. If there's any synthetic in it, <coughs> it loses its efficiency. There was a case in, I think it was 1997, campers, they had blankets with them. Uh, they lay down in a ditch and put the blankets over them. One was a pure wool and he survived. The other had synthetic in it and he died. Wow. And
0: So may I ask... Um, The difference is how much the heat penetrates and
2: the synthetics melt and become a problem synthetic melts and becomes a problem yes people also have the wrong idea that you have to wet the blanket Mm. but if you wet it that takes away the natural properties of pure wool Mm. uh, that embers landing on itself extinguish Mm. you can wet a little bit across your nose it helps you to breathe a bit more freely but pure wool does breathe and that's why it's one of the reasons. It's better than foil. A foil tent will protect you from radiant heat, but it won't protect you from embers because they'll fall through. And also, you can't breathe through them, and your body will heat up too much. Your, people's bodies heating up too much will cause heat stroke, and that's another big factor that comes in. But pure pure wool, it breathes and Look, in most dire circumstances, the classic ones, the 1939 Black Friday, George Sellers, he was working in the timber mills down in the Otways, and the fire, they used to live right in with the mills right in the middle of the forest in, in those days, and of course the, the fire was raging all around. And 15 of his mates dived into the saw, sawdust pile, and of course they perished. He put his heavy-duty, pure wool blanket, you know, grey blankets they'd all have, and stayed under that while the fire raged around him and survived. Mm-hmm. Then on Black Saturday there was a young mother at Kinglake. She was only in her early 20s and she really didn't know what to do but she'd heard about the blanket so she grabbed a blanket and she sat on her lawn with her baby there under the blanket with the... State Forest just burning at the almost at her back door and, and they both survived. Mm. So it's just, uh, is, you know, carry it in your car, take it everywhere, You at least even if you haven't got the full survival kit, which I mm. devised in 1964, um, your pure wool blanket and something to drink, of course, and, so, you know, something to put over your nose. If you've got your blanket, that's over your nose. But mm-hmm. So... Does it matter what sort of wool? Because a lot of people might have a cashmere woolen blanket. Oh, that won't be strong enough. It needs to be heavy duty. The more heavy duty, um, like the old grey army blankets and that sort of thing, which you can get at disposal stores. And, um, yes, so the more heavy duty, the more protection you get. I think the light cashmere ones, I wouldn't trust that. (laughs) The the weave's too loose, really. And...
0: I imagine uh, it needs to be large enough to wrap completely around you, so it almost becomes
2: like a hood or a tent around you. Yes, it needs to be a big one. I was lucky, years and years ago, I got one at at an op shop. It's really one and a half double blankets sewn together, and it's marvellous, so it's always with me.
0: That was joan webster order of australia medal winner and author of two books on bushfire safety and with a little tip at the end there about how to use a woolen blanket if all else fails that's the end of our show today uh, thank you for listening stay tuned we've got another 23 episodes coming over the next six months and looking forward to sharing all of the local activities and the wealth of knowledge that is held by people in this region about the climate emergency mitigating climate change and adaptation. This is Turning the Goldfields Green. My name is Alison Hanley. See you next time. Salt Salt of the Earth
2: Salt of the Earth. Salt. Salt. Salt Grassroots. 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 Grassroots.
0: Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, please email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. Please be aware that if you do email us, we may read your email on the show and we may identify you by first name. If you do not want this, please say so in your email.